Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Rudin, your host, and with me as always is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Brian. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you. We are in Clayton Studios outside of St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, for this episode, we're gathering here at the uh, end of January of 2021. We're not quite, we're just about a year, I guess, into uh, COVID-19. And the the topic that uh, is on everybody's minds is the vaccines. And so for the discussion we're going to have for this episode, we're going to look at um how vaccines and the rollout um, are being perceived and the information that's being shared among those who uh, are faithful, those who um, religious leaders. So the topic is uh, COVID-19 vaccines in the faith communities. And joining us as our guest for this episode, uh, our first guest here in studio with us is Father Tom Nairn. He currently serves as provincial minister of the Franciscan province of the Sacred Heart. He previously uh, served in CHA as a senior director of ethics. Father Tom is a PhD trained ethicist. He's an author of several books on bioethics. He also has uh, served on a Vatican work group for international healthcare workers. Father Tom, it's great to see you. It's great to have you with us. Thanks an awful lot, Brian. And then on the phone uh, from New England is Dr. Reggie Eady. He serves as uh, the president and CEO at Trinity Health of New England. And during the pandemic, uh, Dr. Edie has been actively reaching out to communities of color and faith leaders to share important information about COVID-19. Dr. Edie, it's great to have you joining us via phone. It is my pleasure to participate in such an important conversation. Thank you. Great. So, Marianne, uh, vaccine hesitancy, uh, major concern. Um, I know there's been a lot of research done on uh, uh, you know, people's reluctance, perhaps, to, to maybe get vaccine. In fact, there's a Pew Research um, data uh, back in December that showed about 50% of white evangelicals and about 59% of black Protestants say they would definitely or probably not get the vaccine. Uh, among African Americans, there is a, a mistrust of the medical establishment that goes back to the Tuskegee experiment. Uh, some religious leaders have also preached that a vaccine defies the temple of God. There's even been some Catholic leaders that have questioned whether the vaccines that have been developed uh, have been using fetal stem cell lines and whether those are morally compromised. Uh, at the same time, though, it should be pointed out that the Vatican and the U.S. Conference of Bishops have uh, called taking the vaccine an act of charity toward the other members of our community. So that's kind of the context that we've had, and there's been a lot, uh, again, written and talked about this. And so I think providing a little bit of clarity on this is important. I think it's really important. I, um, you know, I haven't heard a word heard in my parish about addressing vaccines at all, which I think is curious because it's on the news and in the papers and uh, on the blogs. And um, But also I, I'm finding it to be more divisive in terms of families dealing with each other where some people are sure that there is, that the testing has been tainted early on, um, and other people who think it's their moral obligation to get a vaccine as soon as possible. So I, th- I think it's a really important topic for all of us to talk through. So let's start off, uh, Dr. Edie, let's go to you. Um, I mentioned in the intro that you have been meeting with religious leaders, uh, clergy there in New England about COVID-19 in general, and I think probably more recently about the vaccine. What are you hearing? You know, it's very interesting. So first of all, I'll say that this, this so-called uh, vaccine hesitancy is it's really it's diffuse. It's you know initially I thought or expected to see it in communities of color, but the reality of it all is it, it's it's diffuse throughout New England. Uh, so here's what I'll say. Um, so what I hear most commonly are concerns around the the narrative, and and I'm comfortable saying the myth 
that there's a micro trip within the vaccine. Uh, it causes infertility. It alters your DNA. It causes miscarriage. And another is that you actually get coronavirus from it. Uh, when I boil things down, though, the most common, at least initially, the most common concern that I have heard is the speed in which uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were produced. In general, it takes on average at least six years to produce a vaccine, and we haven't even reached the 12-month mark yet um, as we've been in the pandemic in this country, and we had, we've had a vaccine since December. So less than, within less than 12 months, we, how are we able to produce a vaccine is what's commonly asked to me. Uh, but, but I think we have ideal answers to all of those questions. I think we can comfortably and scientifically address all concerns. And so we've been very successful uh, when we've had conversations with residents in New England. And have you heard any specific religious objections? I have. I have. I had the uh, the opportunity to have an hour to do an hour presentation with uh, uh, the archdiocese here. Um, so all clergy, I think there was about maybe 50 to 70 present. A very interesting conversation. Uh, it was it was very fruitful. I think in in conversation and knowledge sharing. Uh, but then came uh, you know the one thing that we hear quite often, and that that is the utilization of aborted fetal cells. Uh, from, you know, many years ago used in the production or the testing of the vaccine. So that came up. I did a presentation at one of our hospitals, Mercy Hospital here in in Waterbury, uh, Connecticut, and um, that came up uh, from one of the fathers as well. So it will be, we believe, uh, more common of a conversation topic in the very near future, because as you know, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are going to be asking for emergency use authorization uh, from the FDA very soon. So we're trying to get in front of that, uh, the narrative, to create the right narrative, present only facts to the community, and these type of conversations are allowing us to do just that. Dr. Reedy, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think that oftentimes uh, we get very... Uh, one of our my colleagues at CHA when I worked there used to talk about people of a strong conscience that they are very concerned about uh, how things not only are but appear, and the whole question of of abortion and aborted uh, stem cell lines coming from aborted fetuses is a very big concern about of with some Catholics. Uh, What's interesting about that is there is this long tradition, especially in the Catholic Church, about the fact that we can never keep our hands fully clean, that we are always going to be dealing in a, in a real world with uh, situations which are less than perfect, and that therefore we take a look at how close we are and why we're doing something. And oftentimes, in a situation like this, we can get very concerned about the aborted fetal line, which interestingly began in the late 60s, early 70s, which is very distant from what's happening now, how that is being used in the vaccine, in many of these vaccines, both the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna, it is in testing, not in the development of the vaccine itself. And many, as, as Brian said, many Catholic uh, theologians, ethicists, Bishops, the Vatican itself has said, we are so far away from that situation that it is important for Catholics to get the vaccine, and Catholics can in good conscience t 
take the vaccine that's offered to them. Governments might have a greater responsibility in developing vaccines. Uh, producers may have a greater responsibility. But once the vaccine is out there, the Catholic can take those vaccines, and any person can take those vaccines in good conscience. You know, I want to go back to some to a phrase you used, Dr. Edie, um, which you said, creating the narrative. And I think that relates to what Father Tom just said in terms of how we... People are creating narratives much faster than we are getting news um, from the kinds of voices like Father Tom's. You know, that those roll out more slowly, whereas the narratives that are threatening, maybe laced with uh, conspiracy, theory, conspiracy yeah. theories. And I wonder how both of you respond to the fact that if we're creating a narrative based on the kind of narrative that is totally true, how that gets out there in better ways than it is right now. Yes, I, I would say, Marianne, that it's not easy. You know, we, we witnessed over the last, let's say, and I don't want to, you know, politicize the conversation, but over the last four or five, maybe six years, we've, we've witnessed how narratives sort of lead the thinking. They lead the conversation. And unfortunately, in this country, many of the narratives have been false narratives. And so this is a new day, and yeah, again, I, I give you guys uh, utmost credit to, to have the comfortability, the wherewithal, and the audacity to have this conversation. Uh, and and I, I have conversations with my team every day that we need to create and control the narrative, because if we don't, then, then there will be a myth or disinformation that, that, that usurps all the facts. And so, yeah, this, this is not going to be easy. This is just the beginning. I think this becomes like the new norm in the para-pandemic and post-pandemic era. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, this is an opportunity for us as a country, for, for us as a church, to unify everyone, regardless of which, where they come from or, or how they worship. And we're all suffering from this pandemic globally. And, you know, shame on us if, if, and, and others who have podcasts, who don't have the audacity like you all do, to bring this in the forefront and to present the facts to the residents in this country. Again, I agree with you, uh, Dr. Reedy. I think one of the interesting things with this is that often there is a grain of truth in what's going on. So you mentioned earlier of how quickly this vaccine has been rolled out. That makes an awful lot of people nervous as to why did it happen so quickly What's behind the quick rollout? Now, again, there are all sorts of good answers to that. The fact that we've not had the, the length of time to test it, there are certain things we know and there are certain things we don't know. I mean, we know something about the efficacy of the vaccine. We don't know anything about the long-term efficacy because we don't have the six years of uh, data. We only have probably 10 or 11 months. Uh, we understand why the vaccine came out so quickly, and it might be very helpful simply to be much more transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And that's not going to solve the conspiracy theories, but it probably is going to help a lot of the people who are on the fence in the middle. Do you think that they're... You know, Father, you... Go ahead, Dr. Reedy. I was just going to high-five, Father. You're absolutely <laughs> right, Father Tom. Uh, you know, uh, you're right. We, we know a lot. Uh, we also need to be transparent around what we don't know, so we should do both. I, I absolutely agree. You know, what I often say to people is, you know, usually side effects in a new vaccine show up in the first six to eight months, and we, mm -hmm. and we are... 
We've just passed that period. So we have a good idea of what we're dealing with. Now, 20 years from now, honestly, transparently, we don't know. Uh, but, but so if, if we look at the scale of life, right, so in the midst of a pandemic, you, we, if we do nothing, absolutely nothing, meaning we, we don't as a country engage in this vaccine initiative, we can forecast to the T exactly what's going to happen. And that is we will continue to see three to 4,000 people die every single day, regardless of your ethnicity, of your race, of your socioeconomic status, the color of your skin, your religion, three to 4,000 people are dying every day. Until there's a better alternative, my position is that this is the right way to go so that we as a country can reach herd immunity in a shorter period of time. You're exactly right. I totally agree. Oh, good point. And, and what I was going to ask was, this isn't the first time we've done vaccine. You know, vaccines have been with us for a long time. And is it, um, I guess the frustrating thing for me is it it's, It seems like this is, um, again, and you, you kind of touched on this, Dr. Edie, is that there's been this sort of discourse in society, again, over the last five years or so, where what is the truth? Obviously, the uh, explosion of social media and all of the misinformation and just crazy stuff that um, you see on social media, I think, obviously, is feeding into that. But, you know, in the messaging, is there a way to kind of remind people, like, vaccines are not, you know, something just novel and that have all of a sudden come that there, you know, of course, there's always issues with vaccines. I know, um, you know, in my experience working in healthcare, when we mandated flu vaccines for, for employees at hospitals, there was some pushback on that to say, again, there was there were people who were saying it's, you know, it's, it's against my religion. And so they would have to get a declination form from either their priest or rabbi or whatever. There was obviously some people who had, you know, medical reasons. But, you know, in general, there's there was a broad acceptance that, yeah, flu vaccines are going to protect myself and the patients. And so I, I, I just am curious on if either of you have a perspective on, you know, what has changed? What, where is the, the sort of um, amnesia about the, the effectiveness of vaccines prior to COVID? I guess for me, um, what has changed has been a, a change in attitude in, in this country. Uh, we have gone, again, I'm a Catholic priest. One of the real hallmarks of Catholic social teaching is the common good. And uh, if I'm probably going to say a little bit more about that later, but I think we've moved, even Catholics in this country have moved from an understanding of the common good, what we owe one another as fellow citizens, as fellow members of a religious body, to my rights. And uh, there's not only sort of a good understanding of that, but I tend to think a problematic understanding of that, where my rights trump everybody else. And rather than being concerned about a community, I'm simply concerned about my own individualistic, uh, not only needs, but wants. And it's therefore my attitude trumps everybody else. With that in mind, it is not what I owe my sisters and brothers in community, it's what I can get. And I tend to think that that change in attitude is part of this whole notion there. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me to take the uh, vaccine. And it is my right that is the most important thing. Yeah, you know, I, I would add to that, Father, um, that, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I actually refer to it as education through explanation. And, you know, this, this is the most transparent, based on my research, that we have ever been as a country, probably as a, as a globe, uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, to any medication, right? So I take a blood pressure medication every every morning. I can never give a 60-minute presentation on that blood pressure medication. I just don't know that much about it, even having gone through medical school and been tested on it. But these vaccines, I am making sure, and so is many others across the country and the globe, that they know everything about the vaccine. So there are no secrets. So this notion that there's a microchip in the vaccine, Mm -hmm. I struggle with that because we would know about it, and they're detectable. Uh, And so I often remind people, look, this is not outside of the messenger RNA, this this so-called new RNA technology, uh, which, by the way, is not new. I mean, this has been in the in the in the scientific space for many, many years. They have just been focused on cancer, creating a a cure as well as a vaccine for cancer. And what they did was they simply stopped the line on that technology and shifted it in the midst of a pandemic to creating the vaccine for the pandemic. So I like to to remind people of that. And also, you know, this notion of having two injections, many people say, well, I'm not really secure about that. And then Johnson & Johnson, is, we think, is going to ask for approval uh, for just one injection. But I remind people, go back to measles, mumps, and rubella. Remember the, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, all kids get two doses of MMR, uh, starting at somewhere around, if I remember from medical school correctly, the first dose being around the 12th through the 15th month of age, and the second dose being uh, from four, around four through six years of age. So this whole two-dose regimen for a vaccine is not new. And then we look at the influenza vaccine uh, and compare it to the Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca, because that's going to create some anxiety. They're actually taking the adenovirus and then you combining it with the RNA technology and injecting that. But the influenza vaccine, which I hope most of us took a few months ago, that is an, an, a live virus that they just deactivated or attenuated, meaning weakened. And so this, none of this is really new. Uh, it's just new to those who have not really been in that space. We have the responsibility to educate people so that we can relieve the anxieties, address the hesitancies, so we can reach herd immunity as quickly as possible as a nation. Where do you think that information should be coming from, Dr. Edie? I, um, you know, most of us can't see our doctors right now. Most of us are at the mercy of the news that comes to us um, in radios and TVs and and printed publications. You know, I I remember, <laughs> I'm this old, um, that I was, you know, I got one of the first polio vaccines as they were rolling out and then the MMR stuff. Um, and my mom was really nervous, you know, like she didn't know if she was leading us to slaughter or if, you know, if, if this was the right thing to do. So how do you how do you make sure people are getting the right information? And one other piece I want to tag on to that, uh, based on what Father Tom said, I think it's not only the individual versus the common good right now, but I have never in my life seen such a low level of trust in things like science or government or that sort of thing. So we need to find, back to creating the narrative, we need to find those avenues of communication that people are people are going to trust because the ones that we've been using, they don't. So when we had our first surge uh, in the first quarter of last uh, 2020, um, you know, when they, the surveys that I had access to, the, most of the trust in America went to nurses or healthcare providers. True. Um, yeah. and, and w- but when this vaccine came out, that just dissipated. So my answer to you is wh- where, what, wh- by, by which means should we be delivering this information? 
And I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, if we had time to prepare for this unprecedented pandemic, then I would ha- certainly have a good answer for you, but I don't. So so my answer today would be by every means necessary. I mean, it's got to be the public health departments. It's got to be the local government. It's got to be those who are versed like myself in such topics. We all play a part in this, and, and we can't afford to leave one single community behind because to the extent we do that, we are perpetuating the spread of this deadly virus. So we are on this. And everyone uh, plays has a role to play, and you know. And, and again, a high five to Father Tom, because he he is speaking on behalf of what we all need to hear and delivering that message. And and I don't know that he is has a healthcare background, but I can't tell that he doesn't by by the way he's speaking. So again, we all have the responsibility of educating ourselves and educating our respective communities so that we can move this this thing forward and move ourselves out and through and out of this pandemic. Thanks for the compliment, doctor. Uh, I think there's another issue here. Sadly, the institutions that need to be speaking all do not have high credibility today. I mean, the government. Sadly, I'm a Catholic priest. The Catholic Church has lost much credibility. Religion in general has lost credibility. Um, Many people received almost receive almost all of their information by means of the internet now and sadly rather than helping oftentimes that brings us into our own little world and we only speak to people who think like us and so the ability to uh speak in a much more general way is is lessened it's interesting internet had all sorts of promise and we're seeing also the underside of the internet. So I tend to think what we need to do exactly as you say is is as many forums as possible to be able to speak the truth, to speak it boldly, and to speak it with transparency and ourselves to be accountable. And what role do faith leaders, I mean, if you were to talk to your peers, not just other Catholic priests, but other clergy from other denominations, uh, is there a responsibility from the pulpit that you all have on this? I think so, yes. The difficulty is is that the uh, spectrum of opinions that you mentioned, Dr. Edie, are there within the clergy as well, and that therefore uh, we cannot guarantee that the clergy will be speaking with one voice, because uh, within this diocese, there's uh, an entire uh, spectrum of what people might be saying from the pulpit. And uh that's something I going to think that that you know education is needed, education of clergy is needed, uh, but it's more, much more difficult. And I I think the one message that we are trying to get out at CHA and we we're doing a social media campaign. It started with masking, but we've rolled it out into vaccines, social distancing, uh, just simple things like hand hygiene. It's love thy neighbor. It's a very simple message. Um, you touched on this earlier, the common good and sort of there is a moral responsibility to protect each other from this this virus. We are, especially within religion, uh, religion is a communitarian understanding of the world. It is not an individualistic understanding of the world. And therefore, part of what needs to be constantly said is not what we can get from what another, not claims we make against one another, but how we are responsible for one another as sisters and brothers, all children of God. 
that ought to make a difference. And therefore, again, as, as you just said, Brian, masks are not only there to protect me from others, although they say there's some of that, not as much as many people think, it is there to protect others from the possibility of my having a virus. So that the question becomes, you know, I've heard this many times, that only cowards wear masks. No, only people who are concerned about others yep. wear masks. Amen. Dr. Edey, um, your take on that and the role of religious leaders to sort of all be rowing in the same direction and, and the need to, um, you know, share this message that this is about one another. Yeah, you know, I, I you know, my, my opinion is that not just in communities of color, but the, the church or a place of worship has always been the staple to all communities and all families. And, uh, and to the extent that it's not, it needs to get back there. And here's an opportunity for us to, to use a place of worship to deliver such an important message. So even if, even if a religious leader does not have a scientific background, he or she has, I would think, um, and, and comfortable saying, they have the ability to tap into resources to bring that conversation to the pulpit, to stand next to an expert and deliver the message. Now, we're, not, we're, we're certainly not trying to force people into making a decision, but I think we all as leaders in, in, in our communities have the responsibility of bringing the knowledge to the people so that they can make an intelligent decision and then they can, they can usurp the, the negative, the disinformation and misinformation and the myths that seem to be controlling the dialogue that exists in this country. You know, we've spent most of this conversation worried about people who don't want the vaccine. But the other side of the conversation is all those people who are dying to get the vaccine and don't have access now and may not have access for a while. So what do you think we can be doing to make sure that these things move more quickly and that people are being able to get what they're hoping for um, as soon as possible? So I am a, an apolitical person, at least I consider myself to be. And, you know, recall, there was no playbook in any state in the United States of America on how to roll out the vaccine initiative, right? So we, we knew no more, I would argue, than anyone else. The vaccines landed in December in all 50 states. They were distributed to the hospitals that had the ability to store them, depending upon if it was Pfizer, Moderna, the low temperature, et cetera. And then we had to figure out, so it's sort of like building a bridge as you cross it. We had to figure out how to administer uh, the, the vaccine in a, an efficient and effective manner. Uh, and, and, and that's just that. So, so that's the struggle that we deal with every single day. Um, now, many of us have figured it out. You know, the state of Connecticut, where I live, has been declared uh, one of the best practices across the country. So I am proud of that, especially because the governor has asked me to co-chair with uh, uh, one of the commissioners uh, this whole initiative for the state. Uh, so it's, it's not easy. There, there, there are going to be mistakes made. Uh, but I think if we unify with one common goal, and that is to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible so that we can reach herd immunity, which equals mitigating or decreasing the number of deaths that happen every single day in this country, then that's a thumbs up. That's a, that's a sign of success, in my opinion. That sounds like a really great example of government working with health care. Um, Could I add one thing, though, to that? I, I agree with you totally, Dr. Edy. I think the other thing is it has to be fair and appear fair. Um, and when there's 
a limited supply, it's really difficult to both be fair and to appear fair. And I do think that issues like, as we were talking about before, transparency become important here. Um, issues of public acknowledgments to what we're doing, that, that there's no secrets being done and that certain people get it without other people knowing it, that there needs to be participation of people in developing the process regarding who gets it. Uh, there needs to be accountability that this is, in fact, what we've done. It needs to be evidence-based, as I think we've been trying to do. These are the older people uh, who are most vulnerable who need to get it first. These are healthcare workers who need to get it first. But who are the next people? And finally, I think it needs to be revisable if we're finding out that things are not quite working, that we're not afraid to say we made a mistake and, and try to revise it in a more fair way. You know, Father Tom, that's a really – go ahead. No, Dr. Reed, I was just going to say that um, I think as, as we conclude this conversation, uh, what, what Father Tom said was a nice summary, and I want to give you kind of the last word in, in just, you know, what, what do people at the heart of the matter really need to know and what do we need to do collectively to provide assurances and, and confidence in, in the vaccine process? Yeah, thank you. I was just going to say I was going to support the the, the – the words that Father Tom just said, and that is, um, you know, so, so vaccine hesitancy is real, uh, just like vaccine equity must be addressed. And, exactly. and it has to be addressed in order for us to get through herd immunity. So there's systems in place, as we all know, that have been in place for many, many years that the, the, the final outcome of the equation, the result is marginalizing certain communities. And while that has been that has made America America so far for the hundreds of years that it's been in existence. The problem is with this pandemic is you can't afford to do that because when you marginalize high-risk or high-spot communities, then that means the vaccine is going to be, be here that much longer and we won't reach herd immunity. So my final comment would be just imagine to, to reach herd immunity, we think that it's going to require about 80% of the citizens being immunized or having an immunity to coronavirus. Now, so we should all look at our, look in the mirror and say, well, that means 80% in our household, 80% in our workplace, 80% in our neighborhoods, our cities, our counties, our states. And then we need 80% in the U.S. and 80% in the globe before we can ever remove the masks and stop social distancing. And that's not going to be easy to do. But the only way we can do it is to make sure that we listen to the communities that we service, that we partner with the, the people in the communities, and that we make it easy for the people in the communities to have access to the information, to answer their questions, address their concerns, and access to the vaccine. Again, that's not going to be easy, but it will only, and it will only be possible if we do it collectively. So here, I believe in, in my heart of hearts, this is God saying, it's time for the globe to unite. Now, you know, what, what you believe that's happening or, or declared in Revelations, I happen to think that this is not by coincidence, but we have got to get this right as a people in order to get through such tough times. Wow. That is, amen. That is the perfect <laughs> end to this conversation. It really is. A, a big you. amen, a big high five on that one. Well, Dr. Edie, uh, again, Dr. Reggie Edie, he's uh, the president and CEO of Trinity Health of New England. Uh, great comments, great input. Really appreciate you joining us. Father Tom Nairn, 
always good to have uh, you in, in the conversation. You provide a lot of uh, insights and wisdom, and we appreciate your time as well. Thank you. So for Marianne Steiner, I'm Brian Reardon, and this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. As always, we thank our friends at Clayton Studio for helping engineer and produce this episode. And until next time, we'll talk to you. <laughs>